due to the overwhelming positive response from our our bad joke segment last week i think we should carry that on do you mean your response (laughs) i enjoyed it very much and then i played it for jess and she loved it anyway i demand that that carry on every week for infinity Oh my gosh, pressure. I'd have to go back to the base camp thread. Well, I didn't give you any heads up, so I came prepared for today. (gasps) Okay, great. Okay, good. (laughs) Why do firemen wear red suspenders? I don't know. To hold up their pants. (laughs) No. (laughs) What? Sometimes you have this reaction to dumb jokes that's like anger stuff. And I don't get it because they're just delightful. They're a bit of a whimsy in our world. I say yes. I say yes with no qualifications or caveats. Yes, a thousand times yes. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Steph Vickery. And I'm Chris Toomey. And together we're here to share a bit of what we learned along the way. So hey, Chris, how's your week been? My week has been good. It's been pretty normal. I have some small things to update on, but more interestingly, you just wrapped up your RSpec training, which you've been doing for a while now. So I'm super interested to hear more about that. How are you feeling now that you're on the other side? Oh, I, oh my gosh. I have mixed emotions. I am so excited that it's over because teaching is wonderful, but it's exhausting. I'm also sad that it's over because I find a lot of satisfaction in teaching. I really enjoy it. So it's just, it's a mix. I'm, I'm excited for it to be over because then I will get back to developing on a more regular basis, but then I will also really miss then getting to chat with a group of people and talk through our spec and testing best practices. That optimization of, well, I like doing all of these different things. How do I, how can I arrange a week that has little bits of all of these, like a tapas menu of fun ways to work? But unfortunately, it's rare that you can find that perfect combination. So the experience you're having now of like doing that for a while, but now taking a break from it and probably being a little bit happy, like you said, because it can be exhausting. But yeah, glad you enjoyed it and also glad that it is over now for you. Yeah, and I think it was particularly the schedule that made it hard too, because we were teaching two groups per day. So if we were teaching just one group for the three and a half hours, that would have made it easier. But since we were doing two groups, then we were teaching essentially for about around six and a half, seven hours per day. So that was really the more exhausting part of it was having the the back-to-back groups. But if it were more, as you alluded, as that balance of like teaching for a couple hours each day and then still getting to do my developer thing, that would have been a, a perfect balance. So now that you're on the other side, I'm wondering what were some of the, I guess, takeaways or what resonated with people in the testing story? Because some of it, I'm sure, was just like, here are the mechanics. But what are the things that seem to like really light people up and, and catch their attention? So at the end of each class, we shared a short survey that asked a couple questions like, how was the pace of the class? What did you learn today? Are there any additional topics that you wish we had covered? And is there any feedback that you'd like to share with us? So to answer your question, it's really pulling from those responses from the students. So the popular topics really seem to be around RSpec tips and tricks. So some neat stuff around like using focus filters so you can easily just run one test 
or how RSpec makes the described class available via the described class method. And then other popular topics were factories, test doubles, testing third-party APIs was a full session and a lot of live coding and mob programming. So that one's very interactive and fun. But then I'd say the the cream of the crop, the one that people love most was testing untested code because that's where we actually dove into their code base. And then we would walk through different examples, looking at test coverage or looking at untested functionality. And then we would add tests for it and then walk through that process together. So it was very relevant to their struggles and also gave us the experience that they're having as well working with this code base. So I think that one's the topic that resonated the most with folks. That is interesting because most of what I see written about testing is very much making the assumption that you're like, quote unquote, doing the right thing or doing TDD, writing the tests at least alongside the code. But the idea of coming back and taking untested code, what are some of the specific tactics or approaches that you had there? So the strategies that we fell back on were very much in terms of collaborative, in terms that we would look at the behavior together and we would talk through the existing code that was there. We also tried to take on certain areas of the code base that we felt that we could make progress in, in like an hour to two hours working on. So we would work on it together and understanding what the code would do. Then we would start writing out specs. So a number of untested methods would have a lot of branching. So then we'd start writing those pending tests for the branches that we want to cover and then start filling them out and then really start to highlight some of the stuff that we find that makes testing easier. So it's really focusing on, I I love this term that I acquired from Sandy Metz, but it's shameless green in terms of like, what's the easiest way that we can add test coverage for this now? There may be concerns that yes, we're recognizing this method has a bunch of return values. There's a lot of setup, there's some refactoring opportunities, but let's just first focus on adding some test coverage. And then how much test coverage do we think is enough before we can start refactoring and having more of those conversations? There's some common themes that came out of those sessions that I think will be more interesting than necessarily like the strategy and how we started testing, because that's a bit more unique to the situation. Yeah, let's dive into those. One of the ones that came up that I really enjoyed the conversation around is essential complexity versus accidental complexity. So a lot of the tests required very heavy test setup, which could feel very tedious and then hard to understand how to bring all of that test setup together. And then it was often a question of, is this complexity that is required for this part of the code base, because sometimes that's just true. You need a lot of test setup to make this testable, to recreate a certain scenario, and then you should focus more energy around creating a more robust testing harness so then it's easier for the rest of the team to test. Or is this more accidental complexity? And instead, we want to focus on refactoring some of those classes and creating smaller classes. So then that test setup becomes lighter and then it's easier to test. So that was one topic that would often come up is around, well, is this really essential to the system? Do we want to focus on building out something that's more robust to help the team test? Or do we want to focus more on refactoring some of those classes? One quick question I have on that, as you were talking about potentially refactoring the code to simple, like, so the test is now putting some pressure on it, you're realizing there's some complexity, and you can maybe get away from it. Were you refactoring as you were going? Or was there any sort of like separation there in terms of let's get this under test and then refactor after? It was the latter in our case, where we are definitely focusing on getting the test coverage there and then having conversations around what are our tests telling us about our code? And then this could be a potential refactoring opportunity, but we were definitely focused on let's get test coverage first. And then the team could carry that forward if they were interested to then include some of those future refactorings, because at least now we have some tested behavior that then makes that refactoring feel safer. 
Okay, cool. Yeah, that makes sense. Although I, I definitely have heard different camps there. But I, I think what you're saying of like refactoring under test coverage is always will feel more comfortable. And so that makes sense that that's the approach that you took. One of the other themes that came up, I'm always intrigued how often this comes up, but it's resisting the urge to dry up our test. So there's always an urge that anytime there's amount of duplication to immediately start to introduce, maybe it's let, maybe it's before hooks, maybe it's methods, but something that will then abstract some of that common test setup and then move it out of the test itself. So that was another area that we'd focus on is like, just go ahead and bring all the context that you need into the test first. And then yes, you could look for areas to dry it up, but we would focus specifically on always keeping the context of what's being asserted against close to where it is being asserted. So if you are building up data and you're asserting against it, it should be in the test. If you have a factory that's building up data and you are asserting against that data, it should be included in the factory versus like relying on default values. So that's often something that I find myself advocating for is resisting that urge to dry up your code. And then if you are going to use let and then dry it up that way is to avoid the top level lets because that often just introduces so much coupling amongst all of your test examples where they're now relying on the same let that's at the top. And then eventually someone's going to need a different version of it. And you've introduced this pain point where someone either needs to modify it or redefine it. And I just totally advocate for avoiding that situation. And if you are going to use let, then keep it at least close to your test. So within a describe or within a context. So then that way you don't have this top level let that is in driving all of your test examples. I'm obviously biased based on shared experience and a year of podcasting with you, but lots of hundred sign emojis for that. Yeah. And it's funny because Josh brought that up during class as well, where we definitely understand that some teams really enjoy using let and find value out of it. But out of the different projects that we've been on, we've just seen too much pain from it that we just advocate to not use it. It's really hard to get it right. I do think to get it right means don't keep the top level lets. Always keep it out of that scope. And then you're going to have a better time or better yet, just don't use them. That's my personal bias as well. I love the the subtlety and the not just the broad, like never use let, but the here's the reasons why and here's some slightly more refined versions of it. Like definitely don't use it at the top because then you can't really override it. It's now leaking into the global scope of the all of the tests and et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, that's all great. There are also some fun conversations around kind of like let where RSpec has really cool features. Let is one of them. There's shared context, shared examples. There's also implicit and explicit subject. And then talking about, yes, RSpec has these features, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we want to use them. And that's something that Josh would bring up about FactoryBot, which is a project that's near and dear to his heart since he has worked on it for so long, where he admits there are a number of features in FactoryBot that he doesn't recommend people necessarily use. They're there for maybe those edge cases that you need them, but for the most part, you don't need to use those particular features that FactoryBot or RSpec offers. Implicit subject being a good example of that, where RSpec will take the described class and provide that as it's available, so you could call subject and then reference an instance of that class, but it's really intended just for like custom matchers, maybe shared examples, but anything that's supposed to be abstracted away. And it's something that we shouldn't rely as like a user facing method. It is there, but don't recommend that you use it. (laughs) On a slightly bigger theme, though, one that also came up was the idea of stubbing the system under test. 
So just to kind of walk through that one a little bit, because that's kind of like a, a big phrase in terms of like, what does it mean to stub the system under test? So specific to our spec world, uh, stubbing refers to then instructing an object, maybe it's real or it's testable, to respond to a message and then give back a specific response. So an example could be stubbing a user object to receive a predicate method like admin and then return the response true. So then we can test that behavior relies on a user having admin permissions. And then the system in quotes uh, typically refers to the current class or logic that's being tested. So if you are testing the user spec, then I would say the user is the system that's under test in that example. So then the idea of stubbing the system under test, the ways that I've seen that applied is typically when folks reach to stub out private methods. So if you're in the user class and you have a complex private method and you need to test behavior based on it, but you don't actually want to introduce all of the setup to then run through all of that behavior, then someone will often ask the question of like, well, why don't we just stub that method? And then that way we can test the rest of the behavior in our user class. So that's always an interesting conversation when that comes up. And I'm curious, what are your thoughts in that regard? It's just interesting. This is one of those ideas that I internalized and believed in deeply so long ago and haven't really questioned since that now that you're asking the question, I'm like, huh, yeah, I'm, I believe it. Um, but I think I've sort of forgotten a lot of the context of early on when I was convinced of this. I was like, all right, let me see a bunch of examples, though. And then I saw them and then I was like, cool, I believe it. Now this is just a thing that I believe moving forward. But I think the, the particular example you gave there of stubbing something in the private API. So say you have the user model and there's some complex private method that does a bunch of querying, does some joins and some other stuff. And so in order to test anything that uses that private method, you need it to return the right data. So you're like, you know what, I'll just stub it. But I think in that case, it's an indication that you have too much in your private API. The user model is now doing a whole bunch of stuff. And in that case, I would potentially look to extract a query object. Now you have this other class within your system and in your user test, you now can happily stub that one because you've now ideally tested that logic elsewhere. You've tested that class on its own. You know that that query object does the right thing. And now within your user test, you can just say, hey, assume that query object is going to give us back the right data. And cool, now I'll test the actual user specific behavior. So I think in a lot of cases, it can be a heuristic for this thing is too big. And if you have the inclination to stub out behavior within it, then that's sort of what you're running into. But I think the broader problem is just it can hide issues. Like ideally, when we're running our tests, we want them to tell some amount of truth. And if you're like, I'm going to test this thing, but I'm actually going to fake out a bunch of it, then how do you trust your tests? And I've definitely been burned in the past by tests that were stubbing out the system under test. And I was either like, why is this not behaving how I want? I see right there this line of code that should do this thing, but why am I getting back a different result? And then I realized that's what happened somewhere up in like a before or something like that. So I've been burned before. And again, I think the better alternative is to use that as an indication that we probably want to extract something to some degree. But yeah, it definitely does, not cargo culting, I'll say, but it is one of those beliefs that just like is now in the firmware and I don't really question it. But as I look at it, I'm like, wait, why do I believe that? What is there? Yeah, I really like what you said about using don't stub the system under test as an indication that this part of the code is hard to test. And instead of leveraging our ability to stub behavior, we want to consider what's driving us to stub a private method and look for alternatives like extracting the behavior to a separate class. I also really like how you touched on the point that too much stubbing can lead to pain as the tests become brittle and we start to lose trust in our test. 
It can be hard to know when we should stub behavior and when we shouldn't stub behavior. And to help answer that question, I like to reference an analogy made by Sandy Metz, where she compares stubbing or using a mock to essentially placing a bet. So specifically, when we stub behavior, we're betting that the interface and the method's response is more stable than the method's underlying code. And this is a bet that we make in our code bases all the time. One example is we use this approach to help us write unit tests because we don't want to execute code and collaborator objects. So using this analogy, when we stub private methods, we're making a very confused bet because by defining methods in the private space, we have announced that this method is free to change without concern as to how other objects will be impacted because other objects shouldn't attempt to access and rely on this method. And if other objects do attempt to use that private method, it's totally at their own peril. And yet by stubbing a private method in our test, we're stating the opposite as our test is saying, I think this method is stable and I feel confident predicting its return values. So our object is telling one story while our tests are telling another story. So when I consider the question to stub or not to stub, I think about what I'm betting on and the riskiness of that bet. And to put it simply, stubbing private methods is risky as private methods are more volatile. And instead, the safer bet is to exercise the full behavior in the private method or move the behavior to a public space that's then safer to stub. So pivoting just slightly, but still along that line of stubbing, one of the other areas that we found ourselves focusing was at the controller level, because it's often really hard to get those controller tests right, because you want them to often be at a more integration level where you want to exercise more of the system, unless maybe you're testing specific status codes, and then you're looking for more of a unit level test. But often controller specs can be giant in terms that they are testing so much of the system and reaching through a number of classes and testing edge cases. So they're really just trying to do it all. So one of the other areas we talked about is when testing those controllers, we would see tests that were stubbing not methods or classes that were in the controller, but they were actually stubbing methods and classes that were perhaps like three or four classes away. So showing a lot of internal knowledge as to the behavior that was being run and then stubbing at that level. So one of the other areas we talked about is that when you are stubbing, if that method or that class doesn't know about that other object or that particular method, then probably don't stub it because then you are reaching through another object at that point to then stub behavior that you know about. And then that will also help one and just read for the test. Because I know if I see a test that is stubbing behavior that I can't see in that method, I start to question, am I in the right test for this? Like I start to feel like I'm in the wrong part of the code base. And then two, that also brings back some of that brittleness where you are still reaching through and stubbing behavior, but it's not actually relevant to the method that you're working on. So if that changes, then you may feel some pain in your test because you've reached so far into your code to stub something out. So when in doubt, if your method doesn't know about it, then your test shouldn't know about it either. I like that. I don't know if I've heard that said in exactly that way before, but I really like that framing and that way to think about things and to like avoid coupling to dependencies much deeper in the call stack or like like you said, many classes away or something like that. And it's inter- it falls into a similar place of I could see myself internalizing that rule and then being like, cool, we just that's a thing that we believe now and then saying it years later and someone being like, Wait, why? I'm like, Well, because we don't. Because that's what we said is how we behave now, but fundamentally 
the idea of let's not couple to details that are farther and farther away. I like that. And I, I think it's one of those good, like, cool, we can write this one on a post-it, have that as a heuristic that, you know, if we need to, we can peel back the layers and understand the why of it. But it's a very good top level sort of direction. So yeah, that's a fun one. I'm now adding that to my list of post-its mentally attached to how I test. Just tell him because Steph said it, you know, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I like to think of these more as like a guideline in terms of like hard and fast rules. Same for dry and don't stub the system under test. Like they're all guidelines to help us, but they're not hard rules that we have to follow. And there's one really cool example. I'm pretty sure this is a Sandy Metz conversation that I was reading in regards to stubbing private methods. And she said that when she is writing out tests that she may stub a private method, but she doesn't commit that test. So she may use it initially to help her drive out some of her tests first because tests should be a safe space where we get to try stuff out and then we want that fast feedback, but then she just doesn't commit it. Or in the case of the team that Josh and I are working with, they're working with a lot of legacy code. So if you're dealing with a bug and you need to get a hot fix out and you are dealing with maybe it's a private interface and you don't have time to build up a test scenario that really executes that behavior, it's a trade-off. Like, sure, maybe go ahead and stub it and test it and then ship it, but then also go back and remove that test that's stubbing it and then do a different test for it. But it's always, what's the context of the moment? How urgent is this fix? And what tools do we have available to us? I really like that framing around often we know what we're supposed to do. Like the zeroth order thing is just knowing what we're supposed to do, but often we know what we're supposed to do. And yet for reasons right now in this moment, we're going to do something different. And I think that subtlety and, and figuring out how to navigate that. And like you said, ideally returning to and fixing up any of the quick hacky patches or whatever it is, that is, I think, some of the art of programming to get somewhat uh, lofty with the idea. But like that's high functioning teams can do that really well. But it is a very, very subtle thing. And how do you make sure you don't just continually do that? And then suddenly you're six months into the year and you're like, oh, we've actually just been kicking the can the entire year. And we just have a pile of messes that we've made now and times where we well, just this once, we will break the rules that we know to be there. But it is a critical thing that is necessary. Like you said, in the case that you have a bug or you have some performance issue or something that you need to fix in this moment, being able to rely on that and to know which of the rules you can bend and break and which you should really like never, never do. I don't know. What, what's on the never, never list? That's another episode. We'll figure that out someday. Oh, the never, never list. Yeah, that sounds like that would be fun to build. Speaking of a never, never list, I think I have our first item that we could add to that. And it's also backed by the RSpec team where they recommend not using allow any instance of, even though it's one of their features that they have, but it's really intended more for legacy code in terms of where you really can't get a handle on the object that then you want to mock out. But there's a lot of ambiguity when it comes to using allow any instance of, and then some edge cases around it as well. So that's one of the ones I think that we could add to that never never list wow i'm sure i'm sure there's some exceptions but still whatever <laughs> here we are <laughs> i've definitely struggled with that one in the past and especially like you said in the context of legacy code where it's like i don't want to go fix the entire world to have to do this but i think that's why when i'm writing classes i'll so often introduce the class level convenience method sort of thing like self.run or self.call or something like that so that i have a direct class level method that i can stub rather than having to say allow blah to receive new and return double allow double to receive blah and like that's just a bunch of ceremony and i can see why people look at that and they're like that seems brittle and bad and, and i kind of agree but the convenience method just makes everything real nice and i think would be a solution like when you see yourself in the any instance of can you update that class upstream so that it has that convenience method and then you can hide your shame as it were 
and get yourself off the never never list. <laughs> yeah, we may have to rebrand that list to like last resort list. <laughs> Because I'm sure there's a case or two, like for working with legacy code or where you just have to make that change and use it. But it's a last resort list of them where you need to reach for allow any instance of. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. So give it a try, and thanks again to Scout for sponsoring this episode of the Bike Shed. But that covers most of the themes that we covered in our spec course. I'm sure there's a couple in there as well that may resurface in future episodes. But what's going on in your world? Well, in my world, or sort of the broader world, the state of JavaScript 2020 results uh, finally came out, which I was very excited to see. And so we can do a quick summary. We'll include a link so folks can go through and take a look at everything. But there were a couple of high-level things that stood out to me that I figured we could chat very briefly about. Uh, so the first, unsurprisingly, TypeScript is just running the show these days. The exact degree to which it had gotten to was a little bit of a surprise. In terms of usage... It's at 78%. So of the respondents to the survey, 78%, almost 80% of the people are using TypeScript these days, which is amazing how quickly it has just skyrocketed. The other one that really surprised me was the satisfaction. The satisfaction with TypeScript is surprisingly high. It's up. It's been in the 80s, and it's now 93% satisfaction in the year 2020, which personally, I'm very surprised by that because I would expect a lot of JavaScript developers that don't want this additional layer, this additional set of things that they have to consider sort of forced on them. I can see a lot of situations where a team lead says, hey, we're doing TypeScript now because I say so, and there being some sort of resentment or animosity. And it is a new conceptual space that you have to play in and think about in their generics and things, and the error messages can be complicated. And yet, 93% satisfaction. Yeah, that that is surprising. Although the other part of me isn't surprised either, just because I know a number of people at ThoughtBot have been working with TypeScript and really enjoy it. So while I haven't really worked with it in the past year, year and a half, I am equally surprised, but I also get it that people are really enjoying it. That makes sense. And that seems to be what's happening. So cool. I'm a fan, certainly. So happy to see that that trend going on. Speaking of other things that I am a fan of, Svelte is crushing it. This is actually a big part of the reason that I was excited to see the results come out because I was really interested to see how the community is responding to Svelte. And so in terms of satisfaction, Svelte is number one in 2020. Uh, it is at 89% satisfaction, which is a very high number. So that's of the people that are working with it, how many of them are happy. And so 89% of the people that are using Svelte, which admittedly is a smaller number. But even in terms of usage, Svelte is now solidly number four. So React is way at the top with 80%. Angular is next with 56%. Vue comes next with 49%. And then Svelte is down at 15 percent, which is decidedly lower than those first three. But considering that it was not on the survey in 2018, in 2019, it was at 8%. And now it's at 15%. Like that is a meteoric rise right there. So that combination of people are picking it up, there's a ton of interest in it as well. It's actually the highest interest. So it's at 66%, which is also sort of surprising to me. I didn't realize that it had sort of captured that much mind share. But uh, go Svelte, 2021, year of Svelte on the desktop. 
I think all your hyping up around Svelte is paying off. That's exciting. I'm totally going to contribute this to you. You know, this is totally Chris Toomey hyping up Svelte. This is how we've gone from like 8% to 15%. That seems fair, right? That seems very fair. As you know, the bike shed, we live on the cutting edge of all of these technologies. <laughs> uh, and actually on the cutting edge, the final thing that stood out to me was around build tools and particularly Snowpack and ES Build are two that have basically just showed up on the list this year. This is the first time they've been mentioned, but they're both at the top of satisfaction. They're very high up in interest and they're not very high up in usage yet because they are so new and they're novel and different. But again, I think just seeing that interest and satisfaction for the people that have used it, I think speaks really well. And I think we're moving into a different world snowpack and uh, Vite, I think is the name of it. That's the Vue.js one that is very similar where it's doing fancy ES modules stuff, but the difference in developer experience that you can have with these tools is really interesting, and I am excited to spend more time with them. And apparently so is the rest of the internet. Yeah, all of that seems really cool. I love that we have these types of surveys that are put out into the world, so then we can get kind of a pulse of like what technologies people are using and then what they're really enjoying. So that's really neat. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think always looking at those, I have to take the results with a, a grain of salt. Like I think certain communities are really enthused by the results that they've seen in previous years. So they're more likely to you know, follow up the next year and have sort of tweets and things like, hey, everybody go fill out the state of JavaScript survey because it will be good for our community. But nonetheless, it is an interesting sort of finger on the pulse. And in particular with Svelte, how do I feel as a consultant bringing that into organizations? Is that a technology that's growing or is that a technology that has peaked and maybe I should not be recommending? That was sort of the fundamental question that I was trying to spend a little bit more time with. And I was very happy with the results because I want to write a lot more Svelte, but I want to make sure that that is a responsible choice to be making for an organization. And these results make me feel like, yes, yeah, that's a fair perspective in terms that people who are really excited about their technologies, it's usually one or the other. You're really excited or you're very strongly upset about something and then you respond to the survey. And then the stuff that people are just coasting along with may not get as much hype. So I appreciate that you take these with that little grain of salt and understanding like who's responding to these surveys. But yeah, I think there's plenty more in the state of JavaScript survey. So again, we will link to the full results. I recommend reading it. But those are just some things that stood out to us. But pivoting a little bit, I did have one interesting adventure that I wanted to share with you. See if you had any thoughts in particular, because I feel like this is one of those areas that we should just have an answer to. And yet here I am trying to figure out things. But I needed to validate email addresses this week. And, you know, I, I find myself in a place where I need regular expressions and I'm like, I must have done something wrong. But yeah, we needed to validate email addresses. In particular, the support team had an issue that they eventually tracked down to, oh, this person had an email address that was essentially foo at bar or it was foo at iCloud. Uh, their real name is not foo. I have protected their identity, but it was iCloud and no.com. And so I was like, well, that's unfortunate. And so I knew what I had to do. Let me go check. And what was interesting is I knew I was using input type equals email. And so it's possible that they were on a browser that isn't doing any sort of validation or format checking on that. But I think by default, the browsers will. But nonetheless, then I started to look at, okay, well, I need to probably add a model level of validation. That feels like a good starting point to say we must have a properly validated email address. Now, Steph, if I were to ask you off the top of your head, how do you determine if you have a properly validated email address? <laughs> what comes to mind in that moment? Oh, oh no. Um, I would say we're looking for an at sign and we're looking for a dot com. That's, that's about the extent of my strictness. <laughs> so no dot edu email addresses? <laughs> oh, great point. I don't have a good answer for this is actually my answer to this. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's probably a good answer. So I went on a bit of an adventure trying to find the correct answer, or 
I guess to back up a little bit, this question, this problem that I was facing felt very much like this is not something that I should solve myself, much like crypto or building authentication. Like I should not be figuring out what a valid email address is. I want to go find the canonical answer somewhere on the internet and then just use that. Unfortunately, the canonical answer is pedantic and wrong. And so that was annoying. Uh, in particular, the ones that I reached for were Ruby has the URI colon colon mail to colon colon email regex. So that's a constant that exists within the Ruby standard library. As far as I understand it, that's the best representation. I don't know if it's actually the one that's from the like RFC, i.e. an internet team said this is definitively what an email address is, but it's very similar to that. And unfortunately, a valid email address can actually be foo at bar where the bar is basically like the local network. And so it doesn't need a TLD on it. That is actually technically a valid email address, except that's nonsense. So come on, everybody. That option was right out. So then I went searching for other regular expressions because I figured that's sort of the space that I want and found a handful. And for various reasons, they were wrong in a couple different ways. I found the MailCheck library, which MailCheck has a Ruby one. And so I was like, okay, cool, I'll use that. But... I forget if that one was failing me because it actually didn't have a validation thing. MailCheck is an interesting library that offers suggestions. So if you typoed your email address, MailCheck can help with that. But I don't think it had a validation. But there was one other that I tried. And unfortunately, it didn't match anything with a an accented character. And that felt very exclusionary. So I was like, well, I can't do that. So what I ended up with was a regular expression that basically says anything that is not an at sign or white space, and then plus, so one or more times, a literal at sign, and then anything that isn't an at sign or white space, plus literal dot, anything that isn't white space, blah, blah, blah. And I anchored them with the capital A anchor and the lowercase z on the end. So the not the beginning of line, end of line, but the beginning of string, end of string, I think are the differences there. I know Ruby yelled at me for it, or maybe it was Rails. Somebody yelled at me because I used the wrong ones at first, and then it told me. So I ended up with what I'm going to describe as a very hand-rolled, bespoke, regular expression, which I feel bad about. You're not supposed to do that. But I don't know. I couldn't solve this problem otherwise. So I ended up in that world. I think that's what comes to mind is when you asked me earlier, what am I looking for? If I'm creating my own custom validation for an email, I feel like maybe in the past I've used like a particular gym for this that covers a, a number of cases for an email and the different formats it could be. But I feel like there's an article or blog post that I read that I really enjoyed. I'll see if I can find it and add it to the show notes. But it was essentially what you just said, where it's like, it's really hard to match. It's really hard to not exclude people. We definitely don't want to exclude people. So it's looking for the bare minimum in terms of looking for that at sign and maybe checking for like the TLD that's at the end. And then that was it. Otherwise, relying on having folks then verify their email address and then using that way as to actually like, did you give us something valid and can we communicate with you? But we're not actually going to try to do that in this little text box and then run a regex against it. Like I said, it has that feeling of like this should be solved. And yet I could not find a solution that I was happy with. So I ended up with that. I did add a couple of additional things on top of it. So what I just described was a model level validation. So validates email and then that format. But then I also wanted the front end, the, the form that people are filling out to have a little bit more feedback in the moment. And so I added a pattern to the input. So it's input type equals HTML, pattern equals. And then I tried porting that same regular expression to the front end, but the differences between JavaScript and Ruby's regular expressions came into play. And then also I realized I didn't have a ton of faith in 
really anything fancy. So I simplified it for the front end to be just dot plus at dot plus literal dot dot plus. So I took out some of the additional validation and I really didn't love that I now have a different validation on the front end than on the back end, but it's basically more permissive on the front end and I think more likely to work across different browsers. I was basically terrified of like, I don't want to prevent a valid email address from coming through. So I, I made a gentler filter on the front end and then I ended up with this. Um, but then I did one additional thing, which this is the first time I've actually done this, I'm pretty sure, but I brought in the MailCheck JavaScript library. And so this is the one that will say, like if you type Gmail, but you forget the I, so gmal.com, as an example, they will offer as a suggestion, did you mean gmail.com? And so you integrate it in with like on blur of that input. I can pop up this little span up here above the input. And then it says, did you mean that? And the email address is underlined to imply that it's a link or interactive. And if someone clicks on that, then it replaces the value. And so it's this very nice little experience of like, oh, did you mean this other thing? People can ignore it if they want. So again, I don't want to block anything because if I get it wrong and I'm blocking real signups, then I've done a bad job. But yeah, it was more of an adventure than I wanted it to be. And it was more of a cobbled together solution than I expected it to have to be. But that was my day. <laughs> that resonates with me, though, because in all the times that I've seen email validation, it typically is more complex than simple because folks are trying to essentially be that guard against anything that's coming in. And I think the truth is it is very hard to get it right. And then we're going to end up excluding certain people from being able to sign up, which feels like the worst version of this case. So then I feel like there's starting to be more of a trend, at least in my world that I've noticed where people are starting to roll back, as you'd mentioned, some of those aggressive stances as to what's a valid email. And then yes, so maybe we get some more invalid email. I also like the stance that you're taking and where you're trying to be helpful instead of blocking people from signing up. So you have now pulled in something that will give them hints. It's like maybe you've made a typo because we're going to communicate with you this way. So it is really important, but we're also not going to block you on it. We're just trying to help you out. That feels far friendlier and more in line with the intent and helping people sign up versus trying to be like, no, you gave us something we don't recognize. So you are not allowed. I forbid it. I will say I did not deploy that. So I finished that up on Thursday. Currently, I'm working Monday through Thursday. So I was done around three o'clock on Thursday. And I opted to not deploy it before I went away for the weekend. I can still you know, monitor things, but I didn't want to introduce anything that might block sign up. So I'm still going to watch it very closely as it goes out, because I think that's the worst case here, preventing any valid sign up. So I'm going to watch it very closely on Monday when I deploy it. And interestingly, this is one where I think like a metrics type analysis would be really interesting of what's our rate of signups over time and making sure that when my deploy goes out, that that number does not change. If it goes up, that's good. If it goes down, that's bad, I think. Yes, I believe the words that I just said. <laughs> but I would love that. And I actually don't know if I have any of that instrumented in the app. So I may have to go a little bit closer to the metal to figure this one out. I don't know. I'll figure it out then. But again, that's a Monday thing, not a Thursday at 3 or the equivalent of my Friday at 4 p.m., as it were. Yeah, I like how that is not a Chris at 3 p.m. on a Thursday problem. And that is going to be a Monday problem instead. So that way you'll have time to monitor it. Yeah, Monday, Chris, that guy, whatever, he has to deal with it. I'm not dealing with it. But actually, just to put it out there, if there's anyone listening in the audience that has a better answer to the things that I described today, I really feel like there must be some prior art here that I'm just missing. My Google foo was, was failing me. So if anyone has any recommendations, particularly in the Ruby space, but I'm sort of interested in, has anyone written a really good canonical, this is how you validate an email address, but for humans sort of thing and not for sysadmins operating local networks and things like that, which I am decidedly not these days. But yeah, that's my story. I validate some email addresses now. 
But with that, I think we have covered a wide range of fun, different topics today. So uh, should we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or review in iTunes as it really helps others find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed, or you can reach me at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.